Well, this is our fourth week in the book of Romans, and up until this point, most of it has been somewhat introductory, and in this text, we really begin digging into the meat and potatoes of the book. And as we do, just so you know where we're going, this is, this is a text that's going to bring us face-to-face with just the most fundamental realities in the universe. Um, it's going to take the big questions of life. Where do we come from? Why are we here? What is our problem? What is the solution? Where can we find hope? How do we know what's true? And Paul's going to help us answer those big fundamental questions by looking at the world through the lens of the gospel, uh, by pointing us to our creator and our relationship with him and how all of those questions are answered in the context of who God is, who we were made to be, and the gospel. So that's where we're going this morning. As we do that, if we were going to just zoom out, right, and just say, ask the question, what is Paul conveying in today's text? Verses 18 through 25 of Romans chapter 1. What are the main ideas Paul is trying to get across to his readers? I'm just going to give you a flyby of where we're headed. The first is that mankind has rejected God. The second is that mankind knew better. And thirdly, because of that, mankind is under God's wrath. And so we're going to walk through those one at a time, beginning with the idea that mankind has rejected God. And so to really understand what we're saying here, I want us to back up to a verse we covered last week, verse 17, because what we're going to see is Paul uses the word righteousness, and he kind of contrasts the righteousness of God to the unrighteousness of man. In verse 16 and 17, he talks about how in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And it's revealed, then he goes into kind of setting up the problem in verse 18, because of the unrighteousness of men. That's why the gospel and the righteousness of God was necessary. So Romans 1.17 says this, For in it, that's in the gospel, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we see that mankind has rejected God. Um, And how has mankind rejected God? Well, a couple ways. Number one, by suppressing the truth. Um, So in other words, God has revealed himself to mankind, and we'll we'll look at how he's done that here in a minute. But ultimately what we see is that man has, rather than seeing what God has revealed about himself and choosing to pursue God, we have turned aside from that to devise our own meaning and plans and purpose and pursuits in life. All of us have turned to our own way. We have all gone astray. We have suppressed the truth of God and disdained it. Another way to say that would be this, that never has a man or woman purely and perfectly recognized the reality of God the creator and thus made it their chief ambition to know, honor, and worship him. No one outside of the God-man Jesus Christ has done that. All of us have pursued our own devices. Now, you may Think of yourself or someone else as someone who has pursued God or is pursuing God. But what the text is saying is that none of us have done that perfectly. None of us have done that wholeheartedly. None of us have taken the things revealed about God 
and just laid everything else, else aside and prioritized him above all else. None of us have done that perfectly. Verse 21 says it this way, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. John Calvin, in commentating on this verse, said it this way. He said, Though the structure of the world and the most beautiful arrangement of the elements ought to have induced man to glorify God, yet no one discharged his proper duty. It hence appears that all were guilty of sacrilege and of wicked, abominable ingratitude. So we see that man has rejected God by suppressing the truth, and secondly, by exchanging the glory of God for idols. Man has exchanged the glory of God for idols. Verse 22 says it this way, Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of God, the glory of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So when it says that we've exchanged the glory of God for idols, it's talking about a very bleak picture of humankind and what has gone wrong. Um, Because we have taken God out of his rightful place and tried to worship something he created rather than the one who created it, because we have put that out of order, there's disorder and chaos at every level of our lives. Um, And it's caused us to, by putting things out of order, it's caused us to have corruption and for everything to be twisted. And even to the point that some of the most fundamental basic things of how things should work for us as people in the universe are now completely backwards. They've been turned on their heads, upside down, and reversed. I'm going to look at three ways in which that's happened. One of them we basically just read in verse 25. It says, they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. In other words, because sin has corrupted and twisted our minds and the world we live in to the point that things are backwards, we are now, rather than seeing the created things and worshiping and giving our attention and our affection, our allegiance and our pursuit to the one who created all of it, we have switched it and we are giving our allegiance and our pursuits to things of this world, to things of earth and prioritizing them above the creator. That's one of the things sin does is it distorts things, it twists them, and it makes them backwards. Secondly, it has caused man to make God in his image. You guys know from the book of Genesis that when the Bible talks about how God created the world, that he created man in his image. So you've got God first, then making man in his image. But what the scripture says is that we then have done the opposite. We have flipped it, and we have decided to kind of craft for ourselves some version of God that fits our needs and what we want. We have made him into our image, into maybe a way that makes sense to us or a way that we like or a way that mirrors us to make us feel better about ourselves. And if you don't think you do this, I would challenge you to hit the brakes on that and just think about how many times you may have said something like this. Coming across a difficult truth in Scripture or an idea of God you may not like revealed in his word, we say something like, gosh, I just, I don't know. I could never worship a God that dot, dot, dot. Or we might say, I just, I don't like to think of God as someone who dot, dot, dot. But what if that is exactly what God reveals about himself in Scripture? So as we move into the book of Romans, just, just an encouragement for all of us. Let's, 
Let's do so humbly because the book of Romans is very theological. It talks a lot about who the Lord is, how he works, how he operates, and how we should see the world in light of that. We may come across some things, in fact, we probably will, in God's word that we may not like, that kind of rub us wrong, that make us think, well, if I were God, I don't know if I would do it that way, or I don't know if I'd like to think of God that way. Part of us recognizing our, our, the reality of our sin is recognizing that, look, God is holy. In other words, he is different. He is other. He is almighty. He is all-glorious. And because we are sinful and we have a tendency to do things backwards and corruptly, there's probably going to be some things about him that we don't like, that don't sit well with us at face value. And so would we commit now to humbly approach his word and say, I want to know who God reveals himself to be and not make him into something that I want him to be in my mind. The third way we've turned things backwards is in the idea of idol worship of animals, that man gives beast dominion over himself. This is something that was really common back then and still happens till today where um, mankind will in their desire to be wise and come up with something to worship, will take an animal, make an idol out of it, and begin to worship that animal, which is so backwards because creation order is that God has given man dominion over the beast of the air, the land, and the sea. But you see mankind twisting it and placing those, those animals over in dominion over us. So this is all these ways in which, because we have not pursued God as he's been revealed and gone on to our own devices, our own plans. Everything around us has been twisted and warped and much of it is backwards. We also see the idea that mankind knew better. We'll see the consequences of that sin in a minute, but before we do, let's consider this idea. Not only has mankind rejected God, but we should have known better. Mankind knew better than to reject God. This passage begins in verse 18 where it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And I think it would probably beg the question of Paul's readers, well, why? Why is is God's wrath being revealed? Especially against maybe people who didn't know any better, right? I mean, you think about the fact that this church was Jew, a mix of Jew and Gentile. It would be tempting for the, the Jews or Gentiles to say of the Gentiles that, look, they didn't have the law. They didn't have the scriptures, how could they possibly have known about who the Lord is? And it's like Paul gets ahead of that question. He explains, oh no, they they know. They know enough. They know enough to be without excuse. Let's look in verse 19. Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So Paul basically says, like, there is no excuse. God has been revealed enough for people to know who he is and be accountable to him. And he's done it in two ways. Number one, creation. There's a little bit of irony in how Paul sets this up because he says his divine attributes, right, have been, um, or his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't typically use the words invisible and clearly perceived as, as synonyms, right? Um, that, that's not, those things tend to be opposites and not similarities. But Paul's basically saying this idea of, I think it's intentional, this irony of, look, God's invisible attributes, the thing about him, things about him that can't be seen, his power, his majesty, his glory, even though we can't see them, they are clearly perceived 
in the things that have been made. In other words, a man can walk outside and look at the stars, and though he cannot see God, he can see clear evidence of an all-powerful and majestic being who created all this, and thus we are all accountable to him as part of his creation. Thomas Schreiner, one commentator, said it this way. He said, God has stitched his greatness into the very fabric of the human mind so that his majesty is instinctively recognized when one views the created world. Another commentator, Douglas Moo, said it this way, The fascinating and intricate web of created things in the world around us speaks of the existence of a powerful and intelligent creator. And it's not only the things we can see in creation, but just this sense that God has given us a sense of justice and right and wrong and things we ought to do, things we not ought to do. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, he gives this, this brilliant um, argument for the existence of God just in the fact that we all have a sense of right and wrong. And he, he talks about the idea that, look, you can go to any culture in the world and everyone's going to have a a little bit, you know, nuanced difference between what is right and what is wrong, but you're not going to find a single culture on the planet who has no concept of there are things that ought to be done and things that not ought to be done. There are things that are objectively wrong that should not be done and things that are objectively right, values that we should hold to and abide by. Along those similar lines, Tim Keller said it this way, He said, if there is no God, there's nowhere to locate the authority to give a moral absolute. But no one lives as though there is no right and wrong. They may say they do, but they cry for justice when they or a loved one is wronged. So God has given us plenty of evidence of himself to know that he is there. And because he is the creator, he is to be pursued and worshipped above all else. We also see this idea that the general knowledge of God, the general things he's revealed in the world, are sufficient to make us accountable to him, but not sufficient for salvation. In other words, you can look at the, you can go outside, you can look at the skies, and there's, there's enough there to make you know and realize that there must be a God who has created all this, But all of us have not pursued him to the degree that we should have prioritized him in his proper place. So we've all been blinded by sin. And that knowledge alone is not enough to bring us back into a right relationship with God. And I understand that can be a difficult pill to swallow. I think all of us have probably asked ourselves or at least known someone who has, well, what about the the poor guy out in the bush in a third world country who's never heard the name of Jesus? Maybe it seems unfair of us that God would condemn this man and this man would be under God's judgment when he has no hope of being reconciled to God. But what we overlook in that is that there has been enough of God revealed to every one of us to know he, whoever he is, should be worshipped and pursued above all else and all of us have failed to do it. But God in his mercy has made a way for us to be restored back into a right relationship with him. If you want to do a, a deeper study on this, I would point you to the book of Acts chapter 10. It's the story of Peter and Cornelius. Cornelius is this guy living quite a ways outside of Jerusalem. Um, the church is 
blooming and flourishing in Jerusalem. And this guy hasn't heard about Jesus much yet, but he's pursuing Yahweh. He's pursuing the God of Israel. And God talks about how I've heard his prayers. He's pursuing me. God seems to be chasing this man down, drawing him to himself. There's something going on there, but the guy clearly is not um, in a right standing with God yet. So the Lord puts it upon Peter's heart to go and speak the gospel to this man. Peter gets there, shares the gospel. He believes the gospel, and only then does the scripture quantify him as someone who is then saved, receiving the Holy Spirit, being reconciled to God, his creator. And friends, one of the things we, I think, fail to see in that, that makes us have a difficulty with that concept, is that God is sovereign. He is sovereign. He is the one that made all of this. He made you He made me. He made the air you're breathing in the earth you stand on. And because he's the almighty creator, he is holy, he is different, he's set apart, he can do whatever he wants. And so when we begin to to kind of have these big questions about how can God find fault in this and how can God do this or how can he say that, friends, we're, we're, we're trying to craft God into an image of someone we made rather than humbly submitting to the creator of the universe and what he says about himself. He is sovereign and we're to approach him humbly, understanding that because of our sinful hearts, some of the things revealed about him may not quite sit right with us. But we should recognize that and approach him and what he says with humility. So we've seen that mankind has rejected God, that mankind should have known better. And lastly, that because of that, mankind is under God's wrath. That's what we see at the very beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. That's, that verb there is, is present tense. It's not that the wrath of God is going to be revealed. I think we often think of God's judgment as something that's coming later. And rightly so, because the scripture does speak of a, a day of judgment that's to come. But there's also some measure of God's judgment that's happening right now as we speak. There was someone who came up to one of our pastors um, last week and asked the question, is America as a country under God's judgment? Another way we could ask that is um, when we look at all the evils that are happening in our world, is God going to judge us to that for those things? And friends, one of the answers we get in Romans 18 is like, no, 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 those evil, wicked, abominable, horrendous things, that is the judgment, that is God handing us over to the things we've chosen and the, the natural consequences of our sin. In Acts 120, or sorry, Romans 124, it says it this way, that mankind chose to pursue God or pursue things other than God, even though they knew better. And this is, this is the, the wrath that's been revealed, mentioned in 18. We see it in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And we're going to see him go into even more detail of what those things God has given us over to are next week. But when you look at some of the most disturbing and evil and twisted things in the world, not only are those the things for which we will be punished, but the, the rampantness and the widespread influence of those things is the punishment of God, the wrath of God revealed because of what we have chosen. The commentator I quoted earlier, Douglas Moo, he said it this way that if you imagine like 
mankind is on a, a boat and the river of our sinful tendencies is wanting to drag us downstream, it's not as though God simply lets go and gives us those things. It is that, but that there's an activeness in what he's doing, that his wrath is letting go and pushing us down that road as a consequence for walking away from him and choosing to worship the created rather than the creator. And friends, when you just think about just a Christian worldview, looking through the world and all that's around us through the lens of the gospel and God's truth, what we see is that there are a lot of horizontal effects to our vertical dysfunction. In other words, because the relationship between man and God has been broken and we have walked away from him, we are now living in these horizontal consequences with how we treat each other in this world that we live in. Because when the vertical is off, the horizontal is off. And that we understand that from a biblical perspective, fixing what's wrong horizontally can't happen until the vertical is mended. So if you look at an example of someone having a difficult time um, in their marriage, we do this ministry here at Crosspoint called Reengage. And one of the things you'll see if you go through Reengage is that in the first couple of weeks, what you're going to be pointed to is your relationship with God. That before you can, in any meaningful and helpful way, try to bring healing to your relationship with those next to you, you've got to have restoration to your Creator because that's the foundation for all other relationships and realities in your life. That you're not going to come in to re-engage and immediately be told to look at your spouse and start trying to fix things. But you're going to be told to the first thing is to recognize who God is, who you are, and how you can be reconciled to him. And only then can you in any meaningful way seek healing and restoration on a horizontal level. When we consider parenting, what it looks like for us to parent in a meaningful, healthy way, the only way to get there is to first understand who God is as our father because the realities we experience of family here on earth are in some ways built on and a reflection of God as our father and us as his kids if we're believing in Christ. If you have people in your life that you're having a hard time forgiving or something for something they've done to you, one of the only ways you're going to be able to find any meaningful forgiveness and healing is by first understanding what God has forgiven you of in Christ. So when we consider whether or not we are under the judgment of God for our sin, just look around. Look at the divorce rate in our country and how broken our families are. And the fact that that divorce, at oftentimes when a woman or a man leaves their spouse, is met with rallied support and celebration rather than encouragement to stick it out. Look at the school shootings that are increasing more and more. You want to talk about things that are, have been turned backwards. The fact that over a million babies were aborted in the womb in 2023. Right? The, very, the very thing that was supposed to be a gift and a blessing and a celebration, right, is twisted to the point that moms and dads will then choose to terminate that baby in the womb with a group of cheerleaders around them celebrating that decision. It's backwards. It's twisted. It's us living in the consequences of our sin. You could say the same thing about gender confusion. Gender confusion. Minors whose bodies are being mutilated 
it's backwards, it's twisted, and it's being celebrated as though it's a good thing. You look at the average age of pornography being viewed going down and down, and yeah, it's not hard to see the judgment of God because of what we've chosen. As we consider that, I want to I want us to remember something. If anyone among you is listening to that and maybe you kind of have this thought of, yeah, Kai, get them, right? Those, those are bad things. Take it to them. We've got to condemn those things. We can't stay in silent while people do those things. Guys, it's not them. It's us. It's us. Romans 1, it's, it's not a them problem. It's an us problem that those things that you may consider abhorrent and evil and twisted, that Paul lands us in the same category of those who do such things. Every one of us is broken and sinful and in desperate need of the grace and forgiveness of God. It's not them, it's us. Christianity is maybe the only world that allows us to look on and honestly recognize the things that are broken and abhorrent and corrupted in our world and and see them as for the sinful, bad things that they are and also recognize that those are our brothers and sisters as humankind. We are right there with them so that we can condemn the sin but yet not have hatred and animosity towards those who are wrapped up in those things. And if we understand the gospel, that will be our approach. But all of us stand in great need of God's grace. Um, how many of you guys have done the, uh, the grocery pickup thing? Anybody? Grocery pickup? Fans? Not fans? Well, that's a lot of moms raise their hands and the dads are like, what is that? What's grocery pickup? It's something um, that was invented out of a great need, right? Um, something that someone came up with, probably a mom who has been through the experience of dragging multiple toddlers through Walmart or Tom Thumb at the same time, right? Like that, if you've not done that, you don't know how big of a problem that is, right? So if you don't have kids yet, you may look at grocery pickup and go, why does anyone need that? Man, I'd rather just go myself. I don't want to pay the extra fee. I don't want someone else picking out my produce. I want to pick the apples I want, whatever it is, right? That, that doesn't seem like a good thing because you don't understand the problem it's intended to address, right? Here's the thing about the book of Romans. Right now, we are talking a lot about the problem of sin. But unless we fully understand the gravity of sin, we will not understand the riches of God's grace. Until we really get our minds wrapped around the problem and the issue of sin and its corruption and how it's twisted things, we are not going to be able to fully celebrate God's grace. We're going to see we're going to see things to celebrate before chapter 11. But in chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11, you're going to see Paul writing all this, and he just has to stop and just bust out in a song of praise. And friends, like, that chorus of praise doesn't happen unless you get verse 1, which addresses the problem of sin. And so we're going to, as we walk through Romans, see more and more of God's grace and his answer to this problem. But in chapter 1, this is a lot of it is understanding what the problem of sin is. And as we do... The gospel of God's grace will shine brightly when we put it against the dark backdrop of the reality of sin. So we're going to continue to talk about that. We'll talk about how God steps into that problem. He does not leave us there, but he sends his son Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin and to reconcile us back to himself. Um, but let's, 
as we approach these next couple weeks talking about the problem, let's ask the Lord to help us understand the world and how it is through this lens of the gospel. Would you pray with me? God, I do pray that you would, that you would do that, that as we move through these difficult texts um, that, uh, that, that address why there are so many problems and what the problem is, I, I, I pray for that. I pray for an understanding of, a greater understanding in us as Crosspoint Community Church of your holiness and your righteousness and the problem of our sin. And God, I pray that because of that, we might rejoice all the more in the gospel. We pray in Christ's name, amen.